24, of thoughts, feelings, incidents, which every reader recognizes to be absolutely true to life. At first glance it would seem that one man on a desert island could not possibly furnish the material for a long story, but as we read we realize with amazement that every slightest thought and action the saving of the cargo of the shipwrecked vessel, the preparation for defense against imaginary foes, the intense agitation over the discovery of a footprint in the sand is a record of what the reader himself would do and feel if he were alone in such a place. Defoe's long and varied experience now stood him in good stead, in fact. He was the only man of lepers in his time who might have been thrown on a desert island without finding himself at a loss what to do, and he puts himself so perfectly in his hero's place that he repeats his blunders as well as his triumphs. Thus, what reader ever followed Defoe's hero through weary, feverish months of building a huge boat, which was too big to be launched by one man, without recalling some boy who spent many stormy days in shed or cellar building a boat or dog house, and who, when the thing was painted and finished, found it a foot wider than the door, and had to knock it to pieces, this absolute naturalness characterizes the whole story, it is a study of the human will also, of patience, fortitude, and the indomitable Saxon spirit overcoming all obstacles, and it was this element which made Rousseau recommend Robinson Crusoe as a better treatise on education than anything which Aristotle or the moderns had ever written, and this suggests the most significant thing about Defoe's masterpiece, namely, that the hero represents the whole of human society, doing with his own hands all the things which, by the division of labor and the demands of modern civilization, are now done by many different workers. He is therefore the type of the whole civilized race of men. In the remaining works of Defoe, more than 200 in number, there is an astonishing variety, but all are marked by the same simple, narrative style, and the same intense realism. The best known of these are the Journal of the Plague Year, in which the horrors of a frightful plague are minutely recorded, the memoirs of a cavalier, so realistic that Chatham quoted it as history in Parliament, and several picaresque novels, like Captain Singleton. Colonel Jack, Mal Flanders, and Roxana. The last work is by some critics given a very high place in realistic fiction, but like the other three, and like Defoe's minor narratives of Jack Shepard and Cartouche, it is a disagreeable study of vice, ending with a forced and unnatural repentance. Samuel Richardson 1689-1761 to Richardson belongs the credit of writing the first modern novel. He was the son of a London joiner, who, for economy's sake, resided in some unknown town in Derbyshire, where Samuel was born in 1689. The boy received very little education, but he had a natural talent for writing letters, and even as a boy we find him frequently employed by working girls to write their love letters for them. This early experience, together with his fondness for the society of his dearest ladies rather than of men, gave him that intimate knowledge of the hearts of sentimental and uneducated women which is manifest in all his work. Moreover, he was a keen observer of manners, and his surprisingly accurate descriptions often compel us to listen, even when he is most tedious. At 17 years of age he went to London and learned the printer's trade, which he followed to the end of his life. When 50 years of age he had a small reputation as a writer of elegant epistles, and this reputation led certain publishers to approach him with a proposal that he write a series of familiar letters, which could be used as models by people unused to writing. Richardson gladly accepted the proposal, and had the happy inspiration to make these letters tell the connected story of a girl's life. 
Defoe had told an adventure story of human life on a desert island, but Richardson would tell the story of a girl's inner life in the midst of English neighbors. That sounds simple enough now, but it marked an epoch in the history of literature. Like every other great and simple discovery, it makes us wonder why someone had not thought of it before. Richardson's novels. The result of Richardson's inspiration was Pamela, or Virtue Rewarded, an endless series of letters telling of the trials, tribulations, and the final happy marriage of a too sweet young maiden, published in four volumes extending over the years 1740 and 1741. Its chief fame lies in the fact that it is our first novel in the modern sense. Aside from this important fact, and viewed solely as a novel, it is sentimental, grandiloquent, and wearisome. Its success at the time was enormous, and Richardson began another series of letters he could tell a story in no other way which occupied his leisure hours for the next six years. The result was Clarissa, or The History of a Young Lady, published in eight volumes in 1747-1748. This was another, and somewhat better, sentimental novel and it was received with immense enthusiasm. Of all Richardson's heroines Clarissa is the most human, in her doubts and scruples of conscience, and especially in her bitter grief and humiliation. She is a real woman, in marked contrast with the mechanical hero, Lovelace, who simply illustrates the author's inability to portray a man's character. The dramatic element in this novel is strong, and is increased by means of the letters which enable the reader to keep close to the characters of the story and to see life from their different viewpoints. Macaulay, who was deeply impressed by Clarissa, is said to have made the remark that, were the novel lost, he could restore almost the whole of it from memory. Richardson now turned from his middle-class heroines, and in five or six years completed another series of letters, in which he attempted to tell the story of a man and an aristocrat. The result was Sir Charles Grandison 1754, a novel in seven volumes, whose hero was intended to be a model of aristocratic manners and virtues for the middle-class people, who largely constituted the novelist's readers. For Richardson, who began in Pamela with the purpose of teaching his hearers how to write, ended with the deliberate purpose of teaching them how to live, and in most of his work his chief object was, in his own words, to inculcate virtue and good deportment. His novels, therefore, suffer as much from his purpose as from his own limitations, notwithstanding his tedious moralizing and his other defects. Richardson in these three books gave something entirely new to the literary world, and the world appreciated the gift. This was the story of human life, told from within, and depending for its interest not on incident or adventure, but on its truth to human nature, reading his work island on the whole. Like examining the antiquated model of a stern-wheel steamer, it is interesting for its undeveloped possibilities rather than for its achievement. Henry Fielding 1707-1754 Life Judged by his ability alone, Fielding was the greatest of this new group of novel writers, and one of the most artistic that our literature has produced. He was born in East Store, Dorsetshire, in 1707. In contrast with Richardson, he was well-educated having spent several years at the famous Eton School, and taken a degree in letters at the University of Leiden in 1728. Moreover, he had a deeper knowledge of life, gained from his own varied and sometimes riotous experience. For several years after returning from Leiden he gained a precarious living by writing plays, farces, and buffneries for the stage. In 1735 he married an admirable woman, 
of whom we have glimpses in two of his characters, Amelia, and Sophia Western, and lived extravagantly on her little fortune at East Store, having used up all his money, he returned to London and studied law, gaining his living by occasional plays and by newspaper work, for ten years, or more, little is definitely known of him, save that he published his first novel, Joseph Andrews, in 1742 and that he was made Justice of the Peace for Westminster in 1748. The remaining years of his life, in which his best novels were written, were not given to literature, but rather to his duties as magistrate, and especially to breaking up the gangs of thieves and cutthroats which infested the streets of London after nightfall. He died in Lisbon, whither he had gone for his health, in 1754, and lies buried there in the English cemetery. The pathetic account of this last journey, together with an inkling of the generosity and kind-heartedness of the man, notwithstanding the scandals and irregularities of his life, are found in his last work, The Journal of a Voyage to Lisbon, Fielding's work, Fielding's first novel, Joseph Andrews 1742, was inspired by the success of Pamela, and began as a burlesque of the false sentimentality and the conventional virtues of Richardson's heroine. He took for his hero the alleged brother of Pamela, who was exposed to the same kind of temptations, but who, instead of being rewarded for his virtue, was unceremoniously turned out of doors by his mistress. There the burlesque ends, the hero takes to the open road, and Fielding forgets all about Pamela in telling the adventures of Joseph and his companion, Parson Adams, and like Richardson, who has no humor, who minces words, and moralizes, and votes on the sentimental woes of his heroines. Fielding is direct, vigorous, hilarious, and coarse to the point of vulgarity. He is full of animal spirits, and he tells the story of a vagabond life, not for the sake of moralizing, like Richardson, or for emphasizing a forced repentance, like Defoe, but simply because it interests him, and his only concern is to laugh men out of their follies. So his story, though it abounds in unpleasant incidents, generally leaves the reader with the strong impression of reality. Fielding's later novels are Jonathan Wilde, The Story of a Rogue, which suggests Defoe's narrative, The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling 1749, his best work, and Amelia 1751, The Story of a Good Wife in contrast with an unworthy husband. His strength in all these works is in the vigorous but coarse figures, like those of January Stain's pictures, which fill most of his pages, his weakness is in lack of taste and in barrenness of imagination or invention, which leads him to repeat his plots and incidents with slight variations. In all his work sincerity is perhaps the most marked characteristic. Fielding likes virile men, just as they are, good and bad, but detests shams of every sort. His satire has none of Swift's bitterness, but is subtle as that of Chaucer, and good-natured as that of Steele. He never moralizes though some of his powerfully drawn scenes suggest a deeper moral lesson than anything in Defoe or Richardson, and he never judges even the worst of his characters without remembering his own frailty and tempering justice with mercy. On the whole, though much of his work is perhaps in bad taste and is too coarse for pleasant or profitable reading, Fielding must be regarded as an artist, a very great artist, in realistic fiction, and the advanced student who reads him will probably concur in the judgment of a modern critic that, by giving us genuine pictures of men and women of his own age, without moralizing over their vices and virtues, he became the real founder of the modern novel. 
Smollett and Stern Tobias Smollett 1721-1771 apparently tried to carry on Fielding's work, but he lacked Fielding's genius, as well as his humor and inherent kindness, and so crowded his pages with the horrors and brutalities which are sometimes mistaken for realism. Smollett was a physician, of eccentric manners and ferocious instincts, who developed his unnatural peculiarities by going as a surgeon on a battleship where he seems to have picked up all the evils of the Navy and of the medical profession to use later in his novels. His three best-known works are Roderick Random 1748, a series of adventures related by the hero, Peregrine Pickle 1751 in which he reflects with brutal directness the worst of his experiences at sea, and Humphrey Clinker 1771, his last work, recounting the mild adventures of the Welsh family in a journey through England and Scotland. This last alone can be generally read without arousing the reader's profound disgust, without any particular ability. He models his novels on Don Quixote, and the result is simply a series of coarse adventures which are characteristic of the picaresque novel of his age. Were it not for the fact that he unconsciously imitates Johnson's every man in his humor, he would hardly be named among our writers of fiction but in seizing upon some grotesque habit or peculiarity and making a character out of it such as Commodore Trunnion in Peregrine Pickle, Matthew Bramble in Humphrey Clinker, and Bowling in Roderick Random he laid the foundation for that exaggeration in portraying human eccentricities which finds a climax in Dickens's caricatures. Lawrence Stern 1713-1768 has been compared to a little bronze setter of antiquity in whose hollow body exquisite odors were stored. That is true. So far as the satyr is concerned, for a more reasoned, and lovely personality would be hard to find. The only question in the comparison is in regard to the character of the odors, and that is a matter of taste. In his work he is the reverse of Smollett, the latter being given over to coarse vulgarities, which are often mistaken for realism, the former to whims and vagaries and sentimental tears, which frequently only disguise a sneer at human grief and pity. The two books by which Stern is remembered are Tristram Shandy and A Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy. These are termed novels for the simple reason that we know not what else to call them. The former was begun, in his own words, with no real idea of how it was to turn out, its nine volumes, published at intervals from 1760 to 1767, proceeded in the most aimless way, recording the experiences of the eccentric Shandy family, and the book was never finished. Its strength lies chiefly in its brilliant style, the most remarkable of the age, and in its odd characters, like Uncle Toby and Corporal Trim, which, with all their eccentricities, are so humanized by the author's genius that they belong among the great creations of our literature. The sentimental journey is a curious combination of fiction, sketches of travel, miscellaneous essays on odd subjects, all marked by the same brilliancy of style and all stamped with Stern's false attitude towards everything in life. Many of its best passages were either adapted or taken bodily from Burton, Rambouillet, and a score of other writers, so that, in reading Stern, one is never quite sure how much is his own work, though the mark of his grotesque genius is on every page, the first novelists and their work. With the publication of Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield in 1766 the first series of English novels came to a suitable close. Of this work, with its abundance of homely sentiment clustering about the family life as the most sacred of Anglo-Saxon institutions, we have already spoken if we accept Robinson Crusoe, as an adventure story. 
The Vicar of Wakefield is the only novel of the period which can be freely recommended to all readers, as giving an excellent idea of the new literary type, which was perhaps more remarkable for its promise than for its achievement. In the short space of twenty-five years there suddenly appeared and flourished a new form of literature, which influenced all Europe for nearly a century, and which still furnishes the largest part of our literary enjoyment. Each successive novelist brought some new element to the work, as when Fielding supplied animal vigor and humor to Richardson's analysis of the human heart, and Sturm added brilliancy, and Goldsmith emphasized purity and the honest domestic sentiments which are still the greatest ruling force among men. So these early workers were like men engaged in carving a perfect cameo from the reverse side. One works the profile, another the eyes, a third the mouth and the fine lines of character, and not till the work is finished, and the cameo turned, do we see the complete human face and read its meaning. Such, in a parable, is the story of the English novel. Summary of the 18th century. The period we are studying is included between the English Revolution of 1688 and the beginning of the French Revolution of 1789. Historically, the period begins in a remarkable way by the adoption of the Bill of Rights in 1689. This famous bill was the third and final step in the establishment of constitutional government, the first step being the Great Charter 1215, and the second the Petition of Rights 1628. The modern form of cabinet government was established in the reign of George I 1714-1727. The foreign prestige of England was strengthened by the victories of Marlborough on the continent. In the war of the Spanish succession, and the bounds of empire were enormously increased by Clive in India, by Cook in Australia and the islands of the Pacific, and by English victories over the French in Canada and the Mississippi Valley, during the Seven Years, or French and Indian, wars, politically. The country was divided into Whigs and Tories, the former seeking greater liberty for the people, the latter upholding the king against popular government. The continued strife between these two political parties had a direct and generally a harmful influence on literature, as many of the great writers were used by the Whig or Tory party to advance its own interests and to satirize its enemies. Notwithstanding this perpetual strife of parties, the age is remarkable for the rapid social development which soon expressed itself in literature. Clubs and coffee houses multiplied, and the social life of these clubs resulted in better manners, in a general feeling of toleration, and especially in a kind of superficial elegance which shows itself in most of the prose and poetry of the period. On the other hand, the moral standard of the nation was very low, bands of rowdies infested the city streets after nightfall, bribery and corruption were the rule in politics, and drunkenness was frightfully prevalent among all classes. Swift's degraded race of yachts is a reflection of the degradation to be seen in multitudes of London saloons. This low standard of morals emphasizes the importance of the great Methodist revival under Whitefield and Wesley, which began in the second quarter of the 18th century. The literature of the century is remarkably complex, but we may classify it all under three general heads. The reign of so-called classicism, the revival of romantic poetry, and the beginning of the modern novel, the first half of the century, especially, is an age of prose, going largely to the fact that the practical and social interests of the age demanded expression. Modern newspapers, like the Chronicle, Post, and Times, and literary magazines, like the Tatler and Spectator, which began in this age, greatly influenced the development of a serviceable prose style. The poetry of the first half of the century, as typified in Pope, 
was polished, and imaginative, formal, and the closed couplet was in general use, supplanting all other forms of verse, both prose and poetry were too frequently satiric, and satire does not tend to produce a high type of literature, these tendencies in poetry were modified, in the latter part of the century, by the revival of romantic poetry, in our study we have noted, one the Augustan or classic age, the meaning of classicism, the life and work of Alexander Pope, the greatest poet of the age, of Jonathan Swift, the satirist, of Joseph Addison, the essayist, of Richard Steele, who was the original genius of the Tatler and the spectator, of Samuel Johnson, who for nearly half a century was the dictator of English letters, of James Boswell, who gave us the immortal life of Johnson, of Edmund Burke, the greatest of English orators, and of Edward Gibbon, the historian, famous for his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, to the revival of Romantic poetry, the meaning of Romanticism, the life and work of Thomas Gray, of Oliver Goldsmith, famous as poet, dramatist, and novelist, of William Cooper, of Robert Burns, the greatest of Scottish poets, of William Blake, the mystic, and the minor poets of the early Romantic movement, James Thompson, William Collins, George Crabb, James McPherson, author of the Ocean Poems, Thomas Chatterton, the boy who originated the Rowley Papers, and Thomas Percy, whose work for literature was to collect the old ballads, which he called the relics of ancient English poetry, and to translate the stories of Norse mythology in his Northern Antiquities. 3. The first English novelists, the meaning and history of the modern novel, the life and work of Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe who is hardly to be called a novelist, but whom we placed among the pioneers, and the novels of Richardson, Fielding, Smollett, Stern, and Goldsmith. Selections for reading, Manly's English Poetry and Manly's English Prose Kin and Company are two excellent volumes containing selections from all authors studied. Ward's English Poets 4 vols, Crike's English Prose Selections 5 vols, and Garnet's English Prose from Elizabeth to Victoria are useful for supplementary reading. All important works should be read entire, in one of the following inexpensive editions, published for school use, for titles and publishers, see General Bibliography at end of this book, Pope, Rape of the Luck and Other Poems, edited by Parrot, in Standard English Classics, various other school editions of the Essay on Man, and Rape of the Luck, in Riverside Literature Series, Pocket Classics, etc., Pope's Iliad, IVI, XXII. XXIV, in Standard English Classics, etc. Selections from Pope, edited by Reed, in Holt's English Readings, Swift, Gulliver's Travels, School Edition by Ginn and Company, also in Temple Classics, etc. Selections from Swift, edited by Winchester, in Athenaeum Press announced, the same, edited by Crike, in Clarendon Press, the same, edited by Prescott, in Holt's English Readings, Battle of the Books, in King's Classics, Bond's Library, etc. Addison and Steele, Sir Roger D. Coverley Papers, in Standard English Classics, Riverside Literature, etc. Selections from Addison, edited by Wendell and Greenough, and Selections from Steele, edited by Carpenter, both in Athenaeum Press, various other selections, in Golden Treasury Series, Camelot Series, Holt's English Readings, etc. Johnson, Lives of the Poets, in Castle's National Library, Selected Essays, edited by G.B. Hill Dent, Selections, in Little Masterpieces Series, Rasselas, in Holt's English Readings, 
and in Morley's Universal Library, Boswell, Life of Johnson 2 Vols, in Every Man's Library, the same three vols, in Library of English Classics, also in Temple Classics, and Bonds Library, Burke, American Taxation, Conciliation with America, Leper to a Noble Lord, in Standard English Classics, Various Speeches, in Pocket Classics, Riverside Literature Series, etc., Selections, edited by B. Perry Holt, Speeches on America Heath, etc. Given, The Students Given, Abridged Murray, Memoirs, edited by Anderson, in Athenaeum Press, Gray, Selections, edited by W. L. Phelps, in Athenaeum Press, Selections from Gray and Cooper, in Canterbury Poets, Riverside Literature, etc., Gray's Elegy, in Selections from Five English Poets Kin and Company, Goldsmith, Deserted Village, in Standard English Classics, etc., Vicar of Wakefield, in Standard English Classics, Every Man's Library, King's Classics, etc., She Stoops to Conquer, in Pocket Classics, Bell's Letter Series, etc., Cooper, Selections, edited by Murray, in Athenaeum Press, Selections, in Castle's National Library, Canterbury Poets, etc., The Task, in Temple Classics, Burns, Representative Poems, with Carlyle's essay on Burns, edited by C. L. Hansen, in Standard English Classics, Selections, in Pocket Classics, Riverside Literature, etc. Blake, Poems, edited by W. B. Yeats, in Muses Library, Selections, in Canterbury Poets, etc. Minor Poets, Thompson, Collins, Crabbe, etc. Selections, in Manly's English Poetry, Thompson's The Seasons, and Castle of Indolence. In modern classics, the same poems in Clarendon Press, and in Temple Classics, selections from Thompson, in Castle's National Library, Chatterton's Poems, in Canterbury Poets, McPherson's Ocean, in Canterbury Poets, Percy's Relics, in Everyman's Library, Chando's Classics, Bond's Library, etc., more recent and reliable collections of popular ballads, for school use, are Gunnery's Old English Ballads, in Athenaeum Press, The Ballad Book, edited by Allingham, in Golden Treasury Series, Daily and Flatterty's Poetry of the People Gin and Company, etc. See Bibliography on page 64, Defoe, Robinson Crusoe, School Edition, by Gin and Company, the same in Pocket Classics, etc. Journal of the Plague Year, edited by Hurlbut Gin and Company, the same, in Every Man's Library, etc. Essay on Projects. In Castle's National Library, The Novelists, Manley's English Prose, Crike's English Prose Selections, Volume 4, Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield See Above, Selected Essays of Fielding, edited by Gerard, in Athenaeum Press, Bibliography, History, Textbook, Montgomery, pages 280-322, Cheney, pages 516-574, General Works, Green, Chapter 9, Second 7 to Chapter 10, Seconds 4, Trail, Gardner, Macaulay, etc. Special Works, Leckie's History of England in the 18th Century, Vols, 1-3, Morris's The Age of Queen Anne and the Early Hanoverians Epics of Modern History, Seeley's The Expansion of England, Macaulay's Clive, and Chatham, Thackeray's The Four George, and the English Humorists, Ashton's Social Life in the Reign of Queen Anne, Susan Hale's Men and Manners of the 18th Century, Sydney's England and the English in the 18th Century, Literature, General Works, The Cambridge Literature, Tame, Saints Burberry, 
etc. Special works. Perry's English Literature in the 18th Century, L. Stevens' English Literature in the 18th Century, Secombi's The Age of Johnson, Dennis's The Age of Pope, Goss's History of English Literature in the 18th Century, Whitwell's Some 18th Century Men of Letters Cooper, Stern, Fielding, Goldsmith, Gray, Johnson, and Boswell, Johnson's 18th Century Letters and Letter Writers, Williams's English Letters and Letter Writers of the 18th Century, Mento's Manual of English Prose Writers, Clark's Study of English Prose Writers, Bourne's English Newspapers, J.B. Williams's A History of English Journalism, L. Stevens' History of English Thought in the 18th Century, The Romantic Revival, W.L. Phelps's The Beginnings of the English Romantic Movement, Beers's English Romanticism in the 18th Century, The Novel, Raleigh's The English Novel, Simons's An Introduction to the Study of English Fiction, Crosses the Development of the English Novel, Jusserand's The English Novel in the Time of Shakespeare, Stoddard's The Evolution of the English Novel, Warren's The History of the English Novel Previous to the 17th Century, Masson's British, Novelists and Their Styles, S. Lanier's The English Novel, Hamilton's The Materials and Methods of Fiction, Perry's A Study of Prose Fiction, Pope, Texts, Works in Globe Edition, Edited by A.W. Ward, in Cambridge Poets, Edited by H.W. Boyden, Satires and Epistles, in Clarendon Press, Lepers, in English Lepers and Leper Writers of the 18th Century, Edited by H. Williams Bell, Life, by Court Hope, by L. Stephen English Men of Lepers Series, by Ward, in Globe Edition, by Johnson, in Lives of the Poets Castles National Library, etc. Criticism, Essays, by L. Stephen, in Hours in a Library, by Lowell, in My Study Windows, by D. Quincy, in Biographical Essays, and in Essays on the Poets, by Thackeray, in English Humorists, by St. Buth, in English Portraits, Warden's Genius and Writings of Pope Interesting Chiefly from the Historical Viewpoint, as the first definite and extended attack on Pope's writings, Swift, Texts, Works, 19 Vols, Education by Walter Scott Edinburgh, 1814-1824, Best edition of prose works is edited by T. Scott, with introduction by Lecky. Twelve Vols, Bonds Library, Selections, edited by Winchester Ginn and Company, also in Camelot series. Carisbrook Library, etc. Journal to Stella, Dutton, also Putnam, Lepers, in 18th century lepers and leper writers. Education by T. B. Johnson, Life, by L. Stephen English Men of Lepers, by Collins, by Crike, by J. Forster by Macaulay, by Walter Scott, by Johnson, in Lives of the Poets, Criticism, Essays, by Thackeray, in English Humorists, by A. Dobson, in 18th Century Vignettes, by Masson, in The Three Devils and Other Essays, Addison, Texts, Works, in Bond's British Classics, Selections, in Athenaeum Press, etc. Life, by Lucy Aiken, by Courthope English Men of Lepers, by Johnson, in Lives of the Poets, Criticism, Essays, by Macaulay, by Thackeray, Steele, Texts, Selections, edited by Carpenter in Athenaeum Preskin and Company, various other selections published by Putnam, Bangs, in Camelot Series, etc., Plays, edited by Aitken, in Murder Made Series, Life, by Aitken, by A. Dobson English Word or These Series, Criticism, Essays by Thackeray, by Dobson, in 18th Century Vignettes, Johnson, Texts, Works, Edited by Walesby, 11 vols, Oxford, 1825, the same. Edited by G.B. Hill, in Clarendon Press.
Essays. Edited by G.B. Hildent, the same. In Camelot series, Rasselas. Various school editions. By Ginn and Company. Holt. Etc. Selections from Lives of the Poets. With Macaulay's Life of Johnson. Edited by Matthew Arnold Macmillan. Life, Boswell's Life of Johnson. In Every Man's Library. Temple Classics. Library of English Classics. Etc. By L. Stephen Englishman of Letters. By Grant. Criticism. G.B. Hill's Dr. Johnson. His Friends and Critics. Essays. By L. Stephen. In Hours in a Library. By Macaulay. Beryl. Etc. Boswell. Texts. Life of Johnson. Edited by G.B. Hill London. 1874. Various other editions see above. Life. By Fitzgerald London. 1891. Rogers Boswelliana London. 1874. Whitfield Some 18th Century Men of Letters. Burke. Texts. Works. 12 Vols. Boston. 1871. Reprinted. 6 Vols. In Bond's Library. Selected Works. Edited by Payne. In Clarendon Press. On the Sublime and Beautiful. In Temple Classics. For various speeches. See selections for reading. Above. Life. By Prior. By Morley English Men of Letters. Criticism. Essay. By Beryl. In Predicted. See also Doughton's French Revolution and English Literature. And Woodrow Wilson's Mere Literature. Given. Texts. Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Edited by Barry. Seven Vols. London. 1896-1900. Various other editions. The Students Given. Abridged Murray. Memoirs. Edited by Anderson. In Athenaeum Press Kin and Compen.